The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 31 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network and the House Show proudly present to you this spooktacular time. <laughs> Let's welcome the trio's tag team champions of the world. The Master Library, Kevin Straight Out of Hellions. Sweet Maddie, Trick or Treats. And the educator of exorcisms. Collectively known as the Haunted House Show. Enter at your own risk. Halloween Havoc 1992. On today's card. Tom Zink, Johnny Gunn, and Shane Douglas take on Arn Anderson, Michael P.S. Hayes, and Bobby Eaton. Flyin' Brian Pillman takes on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Nikita Koloff battles Big Van Vader for the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes defend their NWA WCW Unified World Tag Team Championships against Steve Williams and stunning Steve Austin. Rick Rude battles Masahiro Choner for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Ron Simmons defends the WCW World Heavyweight Championship against the Barbarian. And in the Coal Miners Glove match, the man they call Sting takes on Jake Roberts. Now we're just going to wait a few seconds until the music's over because there wasn't that many matches on this card. Welcome everyone to another edition of the Haunted House Show. It is me as always, Mr. Maddie Treats, and I am joined by my trios tag team partners. To my right is none other than the educator of exorcisms. You like the way I said that? I get a little funk to it. A little, little bit of pepper. Educator, how you doing? Are you the salt to my pepper? Ah, uh, hike, whatever you need me to be. Maybe the cumin. You always need the cumin, baby. <laughs> All right. I was going to say you're the salt. I'm the pepper, and then Kevin Hellions is the Spinderella. <laughs> there you oh, go. I was going for the joke, but you got there first. Okay. I, I try. Well, I always get there first. So, Mr. Kevin uh, Hellions, how, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Excited for another week of Halloween ha- Havoc action and controversial opinions and arguing with each other and curious what the hot tag for the week will be. Spin the wheel. Make the deal. Yes, yes. Uh, Halloween Havoc 1992. These Halloween Havocs have been fantastic so far. I have enjoyed how campy and ridiculous they are. And this one is just like all the others, just to kind of spoil <laughs> it to you. But guys, um, I, there's something that's been weighing on my mind for, you know, a couple weeks now. Um, and, I, and I wanted to bring it up before we get into the Halloween Havoc is... Um, I want to apologize to both of you because I felt like I was late to recording the podcast today because we had set a time previously 
and then I was six minutes early for that time. But you guys were 30 minutes early for the time, which makes me feel like I was 24 minutes late. And then I got wrapped up in Steidernomics, so I don't know if I was late or early. You, you see, here's the thing. Yeah. We all went to the same high school. We didn't do the common core math. We were just, you know, course one, course two, course three. Unfortunately, you know, you have to go with the times, man. I mean, it, it's it's better to be 20 minutes early than five minutes late. Come on. Yeah, I, I just felt like, you know, you being the the young boy of the group that you should show up early set up the ring ears and eyes open mouth shut learn your way in the biz <laughs> love it i'm just saying i was early for the, for the recording i was still early just you guys were more early you know the story of jesse ventura and arnold schwarzenegger on the set of predator right speaking of early no i do not all right so so arnold uh, uh I won't have the times exact, but the times don't matter. Arnold's like, oh, I get up at 7 a.m., go to the gym. Jesse Ventura's like, oh, I got to look like I'm bigger than him. So Jesse Ventura would get up at 6.30, go to the gym, work up a sweat. Arnold gets there with whoever his training partner was and is like, look at him. He's already here. He's worked up a sweat. We get, we got to hang with him. I can't have him looking bigger on set. So Arnold starts going at 6.30. Jesse's like, oh, geez, I got to go earlier. So he starts going at 6. And it keeps becoming earlier and earlier to the point where Jesse Ventura's just showing up, splashing water on himself and pretending he's been there for a while working out. Until eventually, I guess the two of them were like, we need sleep. Let's just stop this now. Yeah. Um, no, but in all, all seriousness, uh, guys, when you talk about getting up early, I, I did something the other day before work, and I think I may be becoming a serial killer. <laughs> Like Count Chocula, you're just pounding the box? <laughs> I might have to edit that out. I don't know if I'm going to edit that out or not, but... Have, have uh, you watched, uh, are you rewatching Dexter? Uh, Dexter's a fantastic show, except for that last... Those last few seasons are terrible, but... Um, so, the other day, guys, I, I get up. I When I work at 7 a.m., I get up at 5 a.m naturally i don't know why during the holiday season we start coming in at six so i feel like it's just my if i just stay getting up at five then i'm good i don't have to adjust my sleep schedule i said then it doesn't hurt as much later correct correct yeah so anyways i go i order a coffee now when i first started ordering a coffee i would go to timmy hose tim hortons for anyone that is not up in the northeastern around the canadian border area they have what's called a double 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 sugar, double cream. I'd get an extra large double-double. Okay. Well, I thought to myself, that's probably not the healthiest coffee to to drink because of the amount of sugar and cream and different things like that. So I've been scaling back. It was then one sugar, one cream. Then it was no cream. And then it was switched to Splenda. I ordered an extra large coffee, one packet of Splenda. Okay. So it tastes like just black coffee, basically, at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And then I get to work 45 minutes early. So I'm in the parking lot at 6.15 for my 7 o'clock shift. And I put on, I'm listening to podcasts. And I hit double time. Times two on the podcast. Have you ever listened to a times two podcast? Yeah, I can't do it. So here I am, 45 minutes early for my 7 a.m. shift. Listening to a times two podcast. Drinking basically an extra large black coffee. Am I going down the route where I may become a serial killer? 
little bit, man. You might want to scale back even more. Come on. Get some extra season. You're... I think if you're downing a hot black coffee that early in the morning, you'd need to maybe get to work early enough to unlock the bathroom. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. If there I unlock go. the bathroom, I just shut it down. <laughs> Speaking of murder scenes, that bathroom. Yeah, it looks like a crime scene. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, around the drain. Now, it's funny listening to our show on Double Time because it sounds like three Ben Shapiro's talking about wrestling. <laughs> Yes, but at least two of us know how to satisfy a woman. We'll let you guys decide which two. I'm, I'm the next run-in. That's the next poll topic. <laughs> well, definitely. No pun on poll. <laughs> Before the educator bought it, it was just a bar. Now? <laughs> I was waiting for people to get it. I'll leave that joke in because that was funny. But there is one thing that always um, satisfies you know, a man or a woman, and that is HalloweenCostumes.com. Of course, use the link in the show notes to save 20% off one item this Halloween season with HalloweenCostumes.com or use the Fun.com promo in the show notes and save 15% off one item off Fun.com. So let's go to our Halloween Costumes item of the week. HalloweenCostumes.com has you covered with every costume for that special lady in your life. If she's looking to scratch the scary itch, if she's looking to scratch the sexy itch, if she's looking to scratch the smart, intelligent itch, we have you covered. You can choose from a variety of costumes to fit whatever need your special someone may have. Maybe she wants to be Wendy Peppercorn from The Sandlot. What about where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? Or how about that little crazy psychotic Harley Quinn? HalloweenCostumes.com has you covered for any need that there is. Just visit the show notes, click the link, and save 20% off one item. Thanks to the house show, the retro network, and HalloweenCostumes.com. Guys, why don't we get right into it? We're talking Halloween Havoc 1992, the date October 25th. Guess what year, guys? 1992. We are back in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the Philadelphia Civic Center for Spin the Wheel, Make the Deal. Uh, About 7,000 people, close to a sold out, it looks like. What did you guys think of the crowd here? Very hot crowd. Um opening match they were super over with wanting the heels any any cheap shots the heels can get in or high offensive maneuvers uh crowd uh, always always busy interesting to see bruno san martino again when we're in the northeast a couple of ecw fan originals we had hat guy and uh vlad were very very obvious in the front row opposite of the hard camera definitely going to be seen a lot through the show so Lots of uh, entertaining spots to uh, for us to look at and analyze tonight. Great crowd, loud crowd, passionate crowd. Um, lighting and setup sucked. the The technical aspects of the show sucked. Um, especially like I liked the ramp last episode last year. I liked the little glitter curtain and stuff. And it seemed like a more well-lit building. This seems, uh, this honestly seems like, you know, ECW hand cam lighting for a show. 
and for some of the the wobbly uh, hard camera angles too. Yeah, I, you could tell too the current that was changing. You know, like the educator brought up was this was a very pro heel crowd, and it felt like a precursor to those ECW crowds. You know, even with this being late '92 and ECW still being years away, you could tell that it was bubbling up where the goody two shoes, all American guy was being rejected by the audience. And, and this would lead to that attitude era in, you know, five years down the line. So, um, very interesting crowd. Of course we get started guys with guess what? The same friggin' intro video that we have had just with different wrestlers. When do you think they update this? Uh, Monday night wars. You think like 96, <laughs> yeah. probably when Hogan gets probably there. 95, I think yeah. 95, 96. Yeah. When they, I think when they, when they get Hogan, probably start putting more money into the show. That is when we will get the new intro video, but we are greeted by Tony Schiavone and Bruno San Martino. So did Bruno live in Philadelphia? Is that what I'm getting from this? Because every time there's a Philly, um, it seems like a Philly Halloween havoc. We have Bruno in there just hanging out, chilling with Tony. Seems to be definitely whenever we're in the Northeast and, and without a doubt, Philadelphia, he seems to be on the show, whether it was a, the first show where he's the referee in the main event or now he's kind of like one of the hosts, so to speak, uh, that they call back to. So, yeah, I honestly, when it opened, I was worried Tony Schiavone and Bruno were calling all the matches and I was like, oh, God, no. Have you seen Bruno ever call a call of pay-per-view, Kevin? Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> It's your own chamber of horrors right there. So, um, but why don't we follow that up with like what has to be an amazing video is the barbarian training for his match with Cactus Jack as his, as his trainer. Once again, Mick Foley making everything better. Uh, what did you guys think of the way they were running down the card here and just kind of, you know, touching base on a few matches, uh, you know, covering the barbarian, getting ready. Of course, then we, you know, jump to Missy Hyatt before we actually get into the start of the actual pay-per-view. It's a good overview shot of what the plans are for the evening. Also letting the fans know that there was a change to the tag match that they would talk about a little bit later and still planning on, you know, pushing the idea that Rick Rude is supposedly wrestling two matches for the night. And then we get a last minute change later in the show. So we got a little bit of suspense. Yeah, just trying to set the tone for the evening and uh, get, get the crowd and the at-home viewer ready to go. Did you guys like the way, like usually when you think of someone running down the card, you think of it would have just been Tony and Bruno, but really they do jump around. They go to, they show a video, they go to Missy, they, you know what I mean? They're, and then they throw it to our announcers, which are JR and Jesse the Body Ventura. And I'm going to ask Kevin this question. Kevin, what did you think of JR and Jesse the Body throughout the show here? And where would you rank the current... Uh, incarnations of the announced teams for these Halloween Havocs because the constant has been JR and really his color man has changed every year. Right. JR does well. Um, who, gosh, who the heck was the host on his, the first Halloween Havoc with him? But I can't even remember the guy's name. I'd rank that last. Avocado. Him and Ventura were great. There we go. I thought they had chemistry. I thought they were entertaining. I thought they showed respect for each other. Some goofing around, some ribbing, calling the match as well. Um, I'm a I'm a Paul Heyman mark for stuff, so I very much enjoyed his. But we've only had one of those so far. 
Um, I'd place JR and Jesse two right now. A close number two, though, just behind JR and Paul Heyman. Would you agree with that, educator? Absolutely. Yeah, I I think it's an interesting dynamic. We are so used to. Uh, I mean, those, anyone that was a WWF fan, Jesse Ventura was the voice of WWF for co- commentating with McMahon, and you know, just seeing him now a part of the WCW programming, it, it, it's it, it's a very very weird jump. And it's interesting to see that Shivani's had essentially a new play-by-play guy or being the play-by-play, a new color commentator with him uh, episode after episode. So I, we're, we're very close to uh, JR's. In fact, this is JR's last show. By spring of next year, he's going to be in WWF uh, getting ready for WrestleMania night. Yeah, he shows up to that WWE event, of course, with a costume from halloweencostumes.com and his toga party you know so uh you gotta love that (laughs) so anyways why don't we move on let's get right into it let's go into match number one on the card okay guys you ready for this it is arn anderson with bobby eaton and michael p.s hayes taking on the z-man tom zink uh johnny gunn and shane douglas um what did you guys think of this? Am I crazy or aren't Anderson ridiculously over during this match as they were going bonkers for him? They were any cheap shot move or high impact maneuver. He was able to hit crowd was loving it. Crowd loved Bobby Eaton hitting any high risk stuff, especially off the top him dropping the knee in the match. Uh, yeah. Crowd just absolutely loving the heels and just destroying any baby face, you know, hot tag offense from anybody from Z-Man, Johnny Gunn, and Shane Douglas. I mean, it's shown respect. Yeah, they're heels, but you're amazing wrestlers, and we're a wrestling town. We're appreciating that. Not the gimmicks, not a young guy, you know, being forced into stardom. We're here for you guys, and we're going to show the support and appreciation for it. It's fantastic. Was the second most over person in this match Ric Flair? Yeah, the number of crowd chants and the woos from the crowd about we want flair and woos. And then later on the match with the or in the night with the NWA title match. Just crazy. Yeah, so why don't we get started on this one? And ladies and gentlemen, are we going to do the hot tag first thing? Let's see. Mr. Educator, are you breaking this one down or is this going to be Kevin Hellions' Halloween Havoc breakdown? Hellions, you ready to go? Yeah, reaching the hot tag, but no, we're gonna hold it right back, baby. So we see Johnny Gunn and Double A Arn Anderson lock up to start off the match. Double A with some vicious knees and a fist uh, to knock Johnny Gunn down for a huge crowd pop. Eventually, all three faces do run-ins into the ring and throw drop kicks to the heels, knocking them off the apron or sending them out to the floor. Uh, Z-Man gets into the match and does a back body drop and a drop kick to Bobby Eaton. Shane Douglas eventually tags in and does an arm drag to then who tagged in Michael Hayes. And then eventually Bobby Eaton comes back into the match and gets an arm drag as well, who then also made a pin attempt and only got a two count. Douglas is now working with Bobby Eaton and does a back body drop to Bobby Eaton and a head scissors takeover. Z-Man does a heel hook and then a leg drop onto Bobby Eaton. 
Z-Man catches Double A with a sleeper hold, who then counters that sleeper hold with a belly-to-back suplex and got a huge crowd pop as he drops Z-Man down that belly-to-back suplex. Michael Hayes tags into the match. He hits a swinging neck breaker onto Z-Man, gets a two-count. Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson do a blind tag and a double-team maneuver to the Z-Man, knocking him down, getting, again, another huge crowd pop. Crowd was just absolutely hot for the heels. Michael Hayes is now working uh, modified camel clutch, continuing to work on the neck and uh, and shoulders of the Z-Man. Eventually, Z-Man is able to battle back and hit a front suplex onto Michael Hayes. We see Shane Douglas with uh, a hot tag, so to speak, and he goes after all three heels, uh, but Bobby Eaton and his flurry is able to clip uh, Shane's left leg. And again, crowd just hugely popping for any of the heel work, knocking down the faces. Bobby Eaton climbs to the top rope and drops uh, an exposed knee drop down to Shane Douglas as Arn Anderson is holding on to that leg so that he can get the full impact. And then Bobby Eaton slaps the figure four onto Shane Douglas. And we hear a lot of woos from the crowd as an, you know, obviously a little homage to Ric Flair. Douglas is able to uh, continue to eventually fight back as Aaron Anderson comes in the ring. Douglas hits an atomic drop onto Arn Anderson, who goes flailing into the quarter after the atomic drop and his head snaps back. And they end up basically headbutting each other as now Douglas and Double A are on the ground. Eventually, both men hit the hot tag. Johnny Gunn gets in and he essentially begins to body slam all of the heels. We see a six-man schmoz in the ring where all six guys are just going at it with one another. And in the middle of the melee, Johnny Gunn bounces off the ropes, hits a Fez press on Michael Hayes, and sneaks a one, two, three pinfall victory for the faces. It's such a weird ending. Like, that ending surprised me who did it, what move did it, everything. I was really shocked by it. Um, From... (laughs) I love Michael Hayes' entrance the, uh, from Bad Street and Atlanta, GA. It's from two towns now. Uh, Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton, I think, might be the greatest tag team that never got a chance to have a long run as the tag team. They're amazing together. They're so good, which makes sense. They're, you know, you have two guys who have succeeded with everyone they've ever teamed up with. Of course, they're going to be good together. They're just going to see it. Um... Jesse Ventura, for some reason, saying, I bet Shane Douglas is a right-wing Republican. There was a lot of politics talk on this show. A lot. I'm still not quite sure why. I think the reason there's a lot of politics talk was the 92 election would have been would have been a week later. Yeah, I mean, that was my guess, but there was a lot. <laughs> you know how sometimes like a kid comes back from military or college or whatever and thinks that they can step to their dad? Yeah, you know, oh, I've... I've been out there in the world and I'm an adult now and you can't tell me what to do. And then the dad whoops his ass. That was this match. That was the three older veterans just absolutely beating up these kids. I'm, I'm shocked that they ended up winning. I'm actually really surprised by it. The three like Anderson, Eaton and Hayes put on something incredible. It was like some of the best wrestling I saw all night. And I, I think I messaged you guys. I was like, can one team have a match of the night and the other team not? Because they were phenomenal the whole time. I, I enjoyed like half of this match immensely. 
out of the um th- this was one of those matches too where okay the young guys get the win and the older guys are putting them you know they're putting them over but are the young guys really benefiting from a match that's set up like this because the stars of the match were the veterans the stars were the veterans of the match and i think this was just a schmoz to to get some bodies a spot on the card itself trying to showcase the new face you know Johnny Gunn being here who's just basically a taller version of Z-Man with longer hair um they mm. keep talking about Z-Man being the young kid the young kid you know he'd been in WCW for over 3 years in fact he was in the opening match with Mike Rotunda back in the, at the 89 Halloween Havoc and here we are 92 so and he, and he had wrestled in the WWF earlier so i mean he's not exactly a, a new boy so to speak in the whole business he's probably been around six seven years at this point you know he's certainly not a veteran like any of the members on the opposing team but he knew his way around the ring and knew essentially what he was doing uh, they're showing how limited johnny gunn himself was you know shane douglas we had already discussed as a part of the dynamic dudes this is not his first you know foray with wcw and being in a tag match there's just they were in an insurmountable position going up against this particular combination of team and how with how hot the crowd was there there was no way that they were going to be able to get over regardless of whether they were winning or not out of the three young guys after watching this match would you be shocked that shane douglas had the best career out of those three I mean, he was certainly the smallest of the three, so you would have thought, you know, and that size isn't always anything, but, you know, it's, I never saw Shane Douglas as anything but a tag guy, but then when he did his ECW run, his first ECW run, and was, you know, NWA champ and then ECW champ, it's just crazy how different the dynamic was, just being able to turn his character from face to heel. I mean, I would have guessed Z-Man still like, oh, they're going to, you know, he's got to have something. He's got to find the right groove for him, but he'll, he'll get there eventually. So we follow up match number one with the very talented Missy Hyatt waiting outside Rick Rude's locker room and Harley Race goes into the locker room. Kevin Hellions, what did you think of this segment? She is being a journalist. She's trying to get to the bottom of things. You have to give her credit for it. It's probably not easy being a woman in that company. And she did her job well, very well. It's a shame that they didn't let her in for the scoop. It's the first time she's ever been denied access to the guy's locker room. Mm-hmm. That's what she said. Um, then we get a quick stand-in with Tony Schiavone and Bruno San Martino. And then we follow that up with match number two on the night. Now, This was the match that I was talking about on our last episode, which to me, when I looked at the card, and you tell me there's a flying Brian Pillman versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat match, it feels so odd to me. And I think the next match as well feels very odd. They just feel like two wrestlers from two different eras, um, two different generations. And I know there is overlap, but it just, I don't know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't sit right with me. Does that make sense to you guys when I say we got a Ricky Steamboat versus Brian Pilbin match? I think what sticks out more for me in this particular match is that Brian Pillman is trying to figure out the newly you know, built heel persona. He had recently turned heel at the previous Clash of the Champions back in September. He was supposed to uh, battle against Brad Armstrong for the light heavyweight title, but Armstrong had an injury 
And at that Clash of the Champions pay-per-view at center stage, much smaller crowd, his interview heel turn didn't really come off that well on TV and to the crowd itself. So we've got Pillman here trying to play heel, but he's still coming out to his old face music or what we knew was his face music with the Cincinnati Bengal gear, you know, tights like tights on. Uh, but great match back and forth between Pillman and uh, and Steamboat and man, the chops back and forth. Oh, they were stiff. I think part of it, you know, like you're saying, oh, I can't believe that these guys wrestled. They seem like from two different eras is us being kids first seeing a lot of these guys. When you're younger, it seems like, oh, my gosh, that that feels like it was five years ago and it may have been, you know, five months ago your, your perception of time is just different when you're a kid because you haven't had much time that you've been on earth yet so you have a different perspective whereas i was looking up stuff i'm like oh geez the, the, you know did this match happen like last year or whatever i'm like oh my god it was five years ago you know like we'll talk about stuff that happened on raw or smackdown and it feels like it just happened but it was forever ago but we're also older yeah i, I think maybe it's just because for me like you said, growing up, I always thought of Pillman as Attitude Era. And Steamboat and Steamboat is obviously most known for, one, his battles with Flair, and then, two, WrestleMania three, which was in the 80s. So maybe it's just the, the primes and the peaks of both of their careers are a decade apart is, is the, the, the crazy thing to think about it, even though there is the intertwining of, uh, you know, the early early 90s so why don't we get right into it educator why don't you break this one down for us all right so we see the start of the match with brian pillman with three stiff chops to ricky steamboat and steamboat retaliates back with a stiff one as well steamboat ends up skinning the cat as he was tossed over the top rope by pillman and as he brings himself back over he sneaks up on pillman does roll up and gets a two count from the referee We see Steamboat working on the left wrist and elbow of Brian Pillman, eventually does a hammerlock takedown, and then starts driving knees into the back and the shoulders of Brian Pillman. Steamboat with a back body drop and a scoop slam to Brian Pillman, and Pillman tries to break up some of the offense with a thumb to the eye to Steamboat to slow everything down. Steamboat does recover and ends up throwing Pillman into the ropes and catches him with a double choke lift and uh, onto Brian Pillman. Very similar to how we think of the great Kali that used to do that double, uh, you know, double scoop up with the choke. Um, something very uncharacteristic of Steamboat doing that. Uh, at one point, we see Pillman faking a knee injury. Uh, as he was thrown into the ropes and he did it to basically sucker Steamboat in as the ref was checking out on Pillman and hit Steamboat with a stiff forearm. Uh, Pillman was able to counter a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker attempt by Steamboat and turn it into a head scissors and follows up with a uh, pinfall attempt for a two count. We see Steamboat uh, attempt a backslide maneuver onto Brian Pillman and only gets a two count for those attempts. Pillman attempts a superplex off of the second rope, but uh, Pillman is face-bustered, essentially. Basically, uh, Steamboat did a front suplex face-buster to drop Pillman down. And as Steamboat uh, is able to uh, counter, 
Uh, Pillman hits a drop kick onto Steamboat as Steamboat was leaping off of the second rope towards Brian Pillman. Pillman is able to do a sleeper hold and climb onto Steamboat's back, forcing Steamboat to carry him around on his back for a good minute, minute and a half in the match. Uh, Steamboat charges the turnbuckle to ram Pillman's head into the turnbuckle in order to break up that sleeper hold attempt. We see Steamboat eventually slamming Brian Pillman, who had climbed to the top rope, apparently to do a top rope high cross body, but Steamboat was able to catch him and toss him off. We see Steamboat and Pillman battle back and forth as they spill out onto the floor, stiff chops and strikes back and forth. Pillman ends up throwing Steamboat back into the ring. He climbs to the second rope and does a crossbody off of the second rope, only to get a two count from the referee. We see Steamboat attempt a sunset flip off of the top rope and is successful in landing maneuver, the maneuver, and only getting a two count. Pillman ended up doing a double leg cradle onto um, Steamboat only for a two count for Pillman to get flipped back over by Steamboat into a third cradle attempt. But this time was successful by Steamboat to hold Pillman down one, two, three for a pinfall victory win for Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. You know, you were an educator with uh, Pillman recently turning heel. I wish this match could have happened later when he got more comfortable in that role. It seemed like he was really trying to not do a lot of his more signature moves from when he was a face, more, you know, flashy, high-flying stuff. There was a lot more, you know, ground game to it and cheating and heel maneuvers and all. But he seemed unsure of it, too. It was really good, though. Like... You know, two counts right away, skin the cat, turnbuckle spot, playing possum spot. And I was like, this match has only been going a minute. And we've already had all of this happen. Like, they they went at it. I just feel like it wasn't quite right. Like, give them a couple more matches, a feud, you know, somewhere down the line, they could have a really great match. But this just wasn't it, unfortunately. I mean, there were spots I really liked. Um, the, the sleeper hold and steamboat running like the way pillman jumped on him and then ricky steamboat trying to break the hold by running pillman's head into turnbuckles i was like geez that's brilliant that's fantastic it's just such a cool move there's so much fun stuff for it but there's it just didn't reach that next level and i think it could have you know with more seasoning with more time with more familiarity really good though Eventually down the road, we end up getting like a very decent tag feud between Steamboat versus Pillman as the team of uh, Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas end up feuding with Brian Pillman and uh, Stunning Steve Austin. And they end up having a really good cage match under the masks as they were impersonating masked wrestlers from Mexico. One question I have for you guys. You know, and we saw this on the In Your House series when we did that with Mark Amaro, and we're seeing this with Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. What happened to the top rope sunset flip? What do you mean? Like, it's just a move that's not used anymore? And it's spectacular. Is it? Was it ruining it's people's... spectacular looking, but there is just so much potential for just mistiming and error and just taking a very bad bump and, you know, neck and shoulder injuries on that flip over. I, it's much safer uh, the, uh, when people do it, like if they're slingshotting themselves from the apron over the top, you know, onto the guy, but just diving from such a, a high distance away and a, and a deep distance away, 
you know, you, you got to hit it perfectly for it to look magical and anything but that. It's just the risk versus the reward. It's not really worth it. It's crazy to think that, though, because of the amount of risks that a lot of people take now with dives and uh, destroyers and, um, you know, poison ranas and whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, doing all these moves and just regular television matches that they haven't really like ricochet hasn't taken that and added it to his repertoire. Uh, Cause that moves so gorgeous. I mean, it really is. It's one of the moves. Uh, I, I would have put it number two for most impressive moves behind that uh, leg drop that two cold Scorpio did off the top, uh, off the top. Yeah. Right. The tumbleweed. Yeah. It's yeah. insane. The backflip into a leg drop. Yep. Uh, so we followed it up with Teddy long in Masahiro Chono's office with the New Japan contingency, um, getting ready and kind of interviewing them to see if they're ready for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship match here. Um, And, of course, there's two referees for our not main event, main event sort of thing. It's almost like they did a a triple main event for... uh, you know, for the pay-per-view here. So uh, what did you guys think of this? Do you remember really the new Japan WCW partnership in the early nineties? Am I crazy for thinking? I always thought um, there was obviously some special pay-per-views over the time with the U S versus Japan and things of that nature. So how long did this really, um, really go on for? This was something that, WCW had withdrawn from the NWA when Flair had left and had went to the WWF. And that's when they had the whole deal with Luger versus Barry Windham for the WCW heavyweight championship. And they didn't even have a physical title belt that, you know, they could have awarded when whoever won that cage match. So Flair and, you know, had possession of the physical big gold belt, took that to WWF, and then that whole scandal that happened with them blocking out the belt and so on. Eventually, WCW had completely withdrawn from the NWA, but then the NWA entered a partnership and got the title back on TV, but then also that partnership blossomed when um, the president of the NWA, which was a member of that contingent that was on TV, wanted to try to reestablish the NWA and make it more prominent again. Uh, but now with more a, a bigger role with New Japan Pro Wrestling. So started to see um, the sprinkling of this, the championship to belt. At one point, like it is abandoned and it becomes, instead of being called the NWA Heavyweight Championship, it's like the WCW International title. They, it's just crazy how everything had went. We we see a few Japan's Japanese stars with Shono, uh, the Great Muda gets involved, and eventually Barry Windham, and then Ric Flair wins the title when he returns back to WCW. It, it was a weird timeline where they introduced this second world title from the old regime of the NWA, but then they withdraw again from being partners with the NWA. It's very similar to like what we saw with the WCW tag team title uh, later on in the match, how the champions, they come out with two belts because they had won the NWA belts when they were trying to be brought back in as well. So it was a unique thing at the time trying to you know creep the NWA back into television prominence. 
it didn't last too long. By 94, uh, I mean, it was abandoned like late 93 when the title was renamed the WCW International title. But by 94, everything had been forgotten and the titles reunified. Thank you for that history lesson, educator. You say you're, you say you're not doing, you're not in the lab, but that was clearly lab work right there. <laughs> so on the spotlight that's work, right baby. um so we get tony shivani interviewing cowboy bill watts and then we follow it up with match number three on the night for us which is nikita koloff versus vader um well really it should have been nikita koloff versus ravishing rick rude to defend the wcw united states heavyweight championship but vader is considered his um his stand-in, if you will, his representative. So Vader is his surrogate for, you know, Rick Rude defending the title. And uh, once again, this is another match that feels like two wrestlers from a different era. And was Koloff as over as I think he was in this match? I mean, the crowd seemed to be really behind him. Very, very much so. He was really starting to rebuild prominence. He had come back in early 91 and had interjected himself into a U.S. title program with Lex Luger. This was before Luger had um, won the WCW championship. So he got back into a program, returned to WCW then after probably about a year and a half, almost two-year absence, and was immediate heel, destroyed Luger's uh, new championship title belt, and had a huge feud with Luger, but never actually cap- captured the United States title. Flailing back and forth with feuds, then he feuded with Sting, and then eventually slowly returned and became babyface again. Started in a great feud with Rick Rude, but then Rick Rude ended up getting this NWA championship match with Chono. And the storyline with him still being U.S. champion and so have to defend at the pay-per-view but then him and his lawyers set an injunction with the use of Polly Dangerously to get the match to be thrown out or stopped. So they set up a storyline where Big Van Vader is going to act as his defending substitute for the championship. And if Koloff was able to beat Vader, he would, in theory, win the United States championship uh, by beating the, the substitute for Ravishing Recruit. Kevin, are you still there or what? I, I got nothing to follow up. Um, I'm here. I'm I mean, here. Sorry. I, I'm, no, it's just dead silence. I'm like, I had nothing to follow up. I had no idea what was going on. Sorry. Kevin, man. are you not a fan of Nikita Koloff or Vic Van Vader? <laughs> no, no, no. It was the history of all of it. Like, this is a very confusing time of WCW for me because I think a lot of it is when our local cable system pulled TBS entirely. They had some sort of dispute. Like we went years without TBS at all. So I went years making a lot of WCW stuff. So I, I'm I'm like very much under the learning tree for a lot of this stuff. This was an interesting. Um, so this was an interesting pay per view too. Um, before I have you break down the match, educator, just because I I really liked these first three matches. I enjoyed this match as well. well Vader Koloff was excellent. And then the pay-per-view 
drags after yeah, this. It and does. it's weird because you wouldn't expect the first three matches being, you know, a six man tag, you know, the Steamboat Pillman match on paper, you would expect that to be good. And then Vader Koloff, especially coming off of the In Your House series and seeing a rundown Vader, um, you wouldn't expect this match to be as good as it is. Um, but yeah, this was, this was really good. And then I thought this signaled the turning point in the pay-per-view where, uh, then it just went downhill after this match. So educator, you just said you seem to have loved this match. So I'm going to guess there's going to be zero hot tags for this one. No reach out, no fake out for aliens here. And you can just go ahead and break it down for us. Yeah. Th- this is like the big man Vader that, uh, grew up watching and loving just hard hitting, just monster, just going nuts. Uh, we see at the start of the match, Vader is brawling with Nikita, uh, forces him to the corner with fists and forearms. We see Vader do an Irish whip into uh, the opposite corner for Nikita. He follows up with a big avalanche splash and then a vicious clothesline as Nikita stumbles out of the corner. Koloff is able to hit the ropes a few times and hits a forearm and then eventually a crossbody to the back of Vader to knock him down. He rolls Vader over and gets a two count over those efforts. Koloff starts to work on a chin lock on Vader, and Vader is able to escape with some clubbing forearms to break free. Vader attempts a second avalanche uh, into the corner after throwing Nikita in the corner, but Nikita dodges out of the way and is able to roll up Vader, who's stumbling back for uh, a quick two count. On the floor, Vader fires Nikita into the guardrail, and uh, picks up a chair and slams it over the back of Nikita, uh, as the referee must not have seen that. Uh, at one point, we see a fan throw a beer, and it hits Vader in the back and his shoulders, and we hear Jesse Ventura just very, very angry, frustrated with the crowd, frustrated the fan. You know, that's like one of the dumbest things you could do at a wrestling show, uh, specifically was said uh, by Jesse Ventura. Vader gets back into the ring. Koloff eventually stumbles back onto the apron and is able to set up a sunset flip over the top rope as he slingshots himself over the top rope. Um, And Vader ends up hitting an awesome sit-out splash to counter the pinfall attempt. Crowd just popped huge for that. We see Vader do an Irish whip into the ropes and does a stiff clothesline to Nikita Koloff. We see what something that is uh, a very botched looking choke slam onto Nikita as Vader picks up Nikita for the choke slam and throws him down, but kind of like twists him onto his side and his shoulder. Um, it just it could have been the bump that was the fault of of Nikita not hitting it right or not falling right. Uh, but it just it was an awkward landing for Nikita and it just it's just so, so out of place, unfortunate. Uh, We see uh, Vader hitting a big splash off the second rope and like Vader had to like dive pretty far almost to the center of the ring. And it was just an amazing sight and the impact of Vader hitting that splash. Just absolutely tremendous. Huge, huge crowd pop for that. Uh, After that big splash, we see a chin lock and eventual sleeper hold onto Nikita Koloff. The referee does the three arm drops. Uh, to see if if Koloff is essentially asleep. Koloff is able to fight back after the third arm drop attempt. We see a belly-to-back side suplex attempt by Nikita Koloff onto Vader 
And unfortunately, it was a botched drop that ends up happening. Nikita Koloff attempts a front suplex onto Vader, but Vader didn't get over properly, and it almost came off like it was a DDT that Koloff did to Vader itself. We see Koloff with a bunch of shots to the gut, and he climbs the ropes to do the uh, the 10-punch corner uh, corner punch onto Vader, and the crowd is essentially counting and chanting with it. Uh, but Koloff gets down after five, and then he bounces off the ropes. Nikita Koloff and hits a running shoulder block on Vader to knock him down. He gets a two count from the referee. We see a big scoop slam, uh, scoop slam from Nikita Koloff onto Vader. Attempts for another pinfall account, only gets a two count. Uh, Nikita Koloff hits his Russian sickle clothesline to Vader, who is leaning up against the ropes in the center, and causes Vader to kind of spill over the top rope onto the floor. Koloff attempts to interrupt the referee's count, uh, pinfall count, or not pinfall count, countout itself by going out onto the floor and starts battling with Vader. And he attempts to do a second Russian sickle clothesline as Vader's body is laying prone against the ring post. But Vader gets out of the way and Nikita Koloff essentially clotheslines the corner ring uh, post itself. Vader ends up uh, getting back into the ring. Nikita slowly follows. Vader throws Nikita into the ropes for an Irish whip and follows with a running avalanche body splash. He then picks up Nikita for a power bomb, slams him down hard to the mat, and gets a 1-2-3 pinfall victory over Nikita Koloff, successfully defending the United States Championship for Ravishing Rick Rude. I think it's such a great match for both of them, really. Like, I've been waiting for this. Vader looks like an absolute monster. The strength of him, the speed of him, the force, the power, everything. He's he's completely 100% in this match. And then Nikita Koloff to take the Russian heel and make him this underdog baby face against Vader is fantastic booking. And he just looks like a tough SOB to just hang in there with Vader. Just the fact that he's not getting mauled, the fact that he is getting back up. You're making him a star this night. Um, how hard Nikita has to work to just get Vader down. Where, you know, we saw WWF matches during the Your House series where, where one little clothesline knocked him down. I'm like, Vader should not go down that easy. Absolutely not. Like, the way Koloff's working at it is great here. Um, even, like, like Vader has a big splash from second rope and Koloff kicks out. Crowd's going nuts. That should have been the end of the match. Everything says that should be the end of the match. And when it isn't, like, Nikita Koloff is hulking up here at the end of it. He slams Vader. He should not be able to do that. Like, it's just, it makes both men look so strong and so amazing. And then when Vader ends up winning, Nikita doesn't look worse. He doesn't look weaker. He doesn't lose anything in this. He's still made in the loss. I remember watching this show and I truly didn't believe uh, Vader was going to win. I mean, I thought this was just an easy way to get the title off of Rick Rude so that Nikita Koloff could be U.S. champion without beating Rude. And then you, I would have expected Rude later on in the night to win the NWA title. And we'll, we'll eventually go over that match as well and how that turned out. I thought this was just a great, hard-hitting match. Nikita just looked really, really good being the underdog, even though he's like a big, jacked-up you know, Russian guy uh, from former Lithuania. 
just fantastic match. I really feel, even though there was a couple of botches and missteps and so on, it just the, the guys look great together. Such hard hitting action. I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. And like you said, you with the way the crowd was reacting to uh, Nikita, you thought this was going to be the uh, crowning achievement where he wins the title. Um, especially on a card where not a lot happens. I mean, there's not a lot, you know, there's no title changes, nothing like that. So spoiler alert. Um, it's just, it is what it is. So yeah. Um, so moving on, we get a commercial for Starcade 92. And I find the commercial for Starcade 92 very interesting because the pay-per-view takes place on a Monday night. I never got that at all. Um, <laughs> That's what they advertise. They were advertising it was on a Monday night. Was that something that they were doing in the early nineties, where they were trying different nights of the week? If if you look at the date, though, I think the date was like the late twenties of December, like the twenty eighth. Does that sound right? Maybe they were doing it knowing that yeah, most most school districts are going to be on vacation uh, for the holiday break, so it wouldn't have been a big deal for the kids, you know, being able to either stay up and watch it or or attend the event live. So. That, that's my guess and you, you know well, it's the it's the first you know thing. it's right after christmas as well so christmas would have been what friday that year correct so yeah you know trying to get yeah. away from the sunday you know that very first hot that sunday after so you figure this is the first you know fresh day post christmas holiday you know making it trying to make it happen as I say, it's probably safer to guarantee you have an audience. If you get Christmas on Friday, people are going to travel. People aren't going to be home Friday, Saturday, Sunday when you might usually right. do a pay-per-view. They'll probably be okay. home by Monday. Let's throw it on then so we got people at home. Which makes sense. It's also good to point out that there was no Monday Night Raw at that time. So right. just, to, just to point that out. Um, but once again, we get Teddy Long interviewing Steve Williams Squared, as I like to call this team, of stunning Steve Austin and Dr. Death Steve Williams. Um, and then we get Missy Hyatt interviewing Barry Windham and Dustin Reynolds. And that leads us to our next match, number four, which is Dr. Death and Stunning Steve Austin taking on Windham and Dustin Rhodes for the United States Tag Team. Now, is it the world? What are they going up for? Uh, so it's the unified. Okay, yeah, unified so, yeah, so what is going here? It's the unified uh, NWA and WCW World Tag Team Championship. Correct. All right. So why don't we get into match number four? And uh, Educator, why don't you break down this 30-minute time limit draw classic? So earlier prior to the Big Van Vader match, there was an interview with Bill Watts talking about how Steve Austin is now going to be the substitute for this particular match and that Terry Gordy was suspended indefinitely. We hear that, um, or we know that Terry Gordy and Dr. Death Steve Williams were a big tag team commodity in Japan. I believe all Japan wrestling they were working for. And in the match at some point, we hear how Doc had just gotten back from a tour in Japan quite literally yesterday, the day prior so there has to be some story going on where Terry Gordy must have missed his flight or just bad connections or just wasn't going to make it in time. So we, we 
we got some definite heat on Terry Gordy for no showing the event. So we have Steve Austin as the suitable replacement. We also have some storyline going on where they are teasing a potential breakup between Dustin Rhodes and uh, Barry Windham issues between the team themselves. uh, Not exactly seeing eye to eye. We even got clips from uh, an earlier match where, uh, you know, Barry Windham yanks Dustin down as he's doing a tag match with, I think, Shane Douglas um, at the time. So there, there's just so many things going on. We've got the tag team championships uh, being defended, the unified championships, which is the WCW tag titles, the unified with the NWA tag titles. And we've got now the opposing team, which is a makeshift team of Steve Austin and Dr. Death Steve Williams. So. We've got a, just a very, very interesting match. And for the uh, different take on that interesting match, I do believe hot tag to Kevin Hell. Oh, Did you not take notes, I'm Kevin? happy about this or not. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. It is now time for the Kevin Straight Out of Hellions Halloween Havoc Breakdown. Is this the longest match on the card? It was a 30-minute time limit draw. Okay, here we go. (laughs) NWA and WCW Unified Tag Team Titles. Dr. Death and Steve Austin versus Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham. Randy, don't call me Pee Wee Anderson as the referee. Dustin going toe-to-toe with Williams. Big clothesline and tackles by Dr. Death. Dustin catches him with Lariat. We got a match. Wyndham has grown out his hair well. Dustin is part of Bill Watts' youth movement. Austin is jacked. So good here and healthy. There's a lot of Ric Flair in this version of Austin whole lot of dyed blonde hair in this match there's so much in-ring action on these shows it's exhausting (laughs) hard hitting and good wrestling in same match how is wcw doing constant good tag matches williams and austin team more like williams and williams williams squared showing teamwork (laughs) did you really have that because i had that too i had that too I really did. I really did. <laughs> Hammerlock pin attempt. Pin attempt. Hammerlock slam. Barry in the wrong corner. Match has slowed way down. Hot tag to Dustin. He's clearing house. Dr. Death with a scary looking Boston Crab on Dustin. Austin picks up Dustin for backbreaker and Austin is in ridiculous shape. Barry tries to break it, but Austin no-sells and keeps the hold on. Great sequence with Dustin and Austin. Austin with a pin attempt grabs the ropes. Ref catches it. You know, for a thrown together tag team, they are a threat in this match. Kick with the flat point of the boot, not the toe. This is going to be a time limit draw, isn't it? Dustin takes a beating, struggling for the tag. Dr. Death comes in. Ref pushes him back. Ref misses Dustin's tag. Dustin thrown over the top. Ref bump second ref counts Austin pinning window. Two minute clock. Near fall. All four men fighting. Multiple two counts. One minute. Time limit draw. And this has been another Halloween Havoc Breakdown by Kevin Hellion.
did you ultimately, Kevin, did you like the match? Because you have a lot of good positive notes up until... There, then there's one note where it just says, this match slowed it down. It does. The middle drags and slows down so much. I almost wish it was like a 20-minute match, you know, a 15-minute time limit match. But to drag it out for the 30, it just drags in the middle. It's like, I, there's a lot of good stuff in it in the beginning. There's, you know, good stuff as we get towards the end. But the middle is just like, get up, go to the bathroom, get a soda, come back. Match is still going. Dustin getting, you know, juiced hard way towards the very end of the match. His left eye uh, added a little bit of drama uh, towards the very end. Dustin just being in the match the majority of the time and very little uh, work from Wyndham towards the end. It, it made you think that there could have been a, an actual title change. But again, trying to salvage what we can with uh, Dustin Rhodes and the impending Barry Wyndham feud for another day. Educator, did you enjoy this match? Uh, very similar to Hellions. It, it was a decent match, fair match, but it just kept going and going and going. And yeah, if it was maybe 20 minutes, that certainly, and, and had an actual finish to it, even if it was a DQ rather than a time limit draw or whatever, there, there's could have been ways that they could have salvaged the fact that, you know, it wasn't Steve Williams and Terry Gordy actually getting their, their either clean defeat or their win to get the titles back itself. So it, it was what it was. Interesting makeshift team between Steve Williams, you know, squared. It's just from this match on, it just seemed like it was a drag. And this match, I think, directly led to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not only was this match drag, but the following match also dragged on and on and on, it felt like. But after that exhilarating breakdown from Kevin Hellions, why don't we take a quick commercial break promotional consideration paid for by the following this october the retro network presents the trn haunted halloween 31 days and nights of spooky themed fun from pop culture's past and present a full month of podcasts videos online features, and giveaways to make the hair on your neck stand up. TRN's Haunted Halloween will also haunt your social media channels with even more shocking goodies. Get the full experience by dropping into the TRN VIP lounge for more bone-chilling excitement than you can handle. Subscribe to the Retro Network podcast channel wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to the TRN YouTube page. Follow TRN on your favorite social media channel at TRN Social and visit theretronetwork.com daily for all the chills and thrills. There's no tricks, only treats as the Retro Network presents the TRN Haunted Halloween all month long in October. Are you like me? Has 2020 brought you to your breaking point? Are you early for work by 45 minutes? Maybe you listen to podcasts on two times. Maybe you only like to drink straight black coffee. 
Well, if you're like me, then you can come to a place like this. Soon to be Serial Killers Anonymous. You may have a problem that you want to fix, and we'll take a stab at it. Remember, Serial Killers Anonymous, where no one will ever figure out who you are. Damn it, did I not... Did I hit the wrong button? Son of a... Alright, we are back with Tony Schiavone interviewing Paul Heyman, Harley Race, and Vader, and then out comes Medusa. Now, guys, we got to talk about this segment because this segment was a highlight for me in that it was very uncomfortable with the way um, Paul Heyman was talking to Medusa, but it was so friggin' good. And this segment you could pick up and you could literally take this segment and pluck instead of Medusa, put in a Becky Lynch, put in um, a a face uh, women's, wrestler whether that's Sasha Banks you know Bailey when she's face whoever and you could do this whole angle right now and I think I think it would be more successful now than it would be uh, then not too many people were familiar with the fact that Medusa was in fact a trained wrestler she I mean she was like AWA women's champion prior to this run in WCW She did have some extensive time in Japan training uh, in Japan itself. Uh, So not too many knew uh, of her in-ring abilities themselves. So it's definitely fun, the whole man versus woman, uh, woman, you know, angle here. What's interesting is that post this interview, and it makes me wonder whether or not the this interview did happen in the actual place it's put on TV it just seems weird that post this interview, then Medusa comes out with Rick Rude. Like, and then what happened, you know, I don't remember what came of the angle after the fact regarding Medusa's involvement with Rick Rude, given that she was, quote, fired from the Dangerous Alliance. I thought that uh, the announcer said something like, um, Rude doesn't agree with Paul Heyman. That's why Medusa's still here. And that was their cover. Yeah, I think that there's like a throwaway line where uh, there's a throwaway line where they say that uh, I think it was like Rick Rude has fired Paul Heyman. Like (laughs) that was it. Uh, There really wasn't a follow up. I honestly think, though, this angle or this intensity should have been used when Ronda Rousey was coming in Um, and. Instead of Paul Heyman, it should have been Triple H to set up a Triple H Rousey match at Mania, in my opinion. Because I don't think anyone, sure, people wanted to see Stephanie get hers, but watching that WrestleMania in New Orleans, when Rousey started punching and attacking Triple H, the crowd came unglued for that. 
and I thought they would be good foils for that. Now I, I don't foresee that happening now, but I really think they should they should revisit something like that, and um, especially with the WWE if they ever do uh, like an intergender match at uh, WrestleMania or anything like that. I think that would be a big big draw for them. Um, but you know what? We follow up that great angle with Sting spinning the wheel and making the deal. So uh, he spins the wheel. It comes up on Coal Miner's Glove Match. Now, are you guys familiar with the Coal Miner's Glove Match? And what did you think of all of the stipulations there were on there for the wheel? The, I remember when I watched this show live way back in when it happened back in 92, the two matches that I was hoping it would have landed on were either Coal Miner's Glove or the Prince of Darkness match because I didn't really know what a Prince of Darkness match was and I wasn't familiar with the Coal Miner Glove, uh, Coal Miner Glo- Coal Miner's Glove match. Had an, you know, familiar with all the other ones that were there, bull rope, chain match, all that stuff. Uh, just it was interesting how it worked out. Now I've heard stories and I've looked, did some research. We see shots earlier in the night of all the different, you know, things that were going to be needed, the gimmicks for the cage or uh, the, you know, the bull rope, the chain and everything else. Have you guys done any research? My understanding is that the the actual wheel itself wasn't gimmicked, um, but it just it seems to just abruptly stop right on the coal miners glove. But there's stories going around that they really didn't even know what kind of match it was going to land on. It was just going to be a random spin and all whatever it landed on. They were they were going to do the same match regardless of whether it was a cage, a, a you know whatever. What is a Prince of Darkness match? Can any, can either of you tell me? Is it basically just a lights out street fight? Basically, and no, you're right. Like, thanks. I think so. But you're right though. Like, there's nothing in this match that had to be a coal miner's glove match, right? So maybe they were like, we could tell whatever story, just let the wheel spin however it wants to, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, just to run down the match options they are. So there was 12 different ones. Number one was the Texas Bull Rope. Uh, there's Spinner's Choice. So I guess there was only really 11 matches, because I'm guessing Spinner's Choice would just be uh, Sting would have been able to pick any match out of the list. Uh, Russian Chain Match. There was the Dog Collar Match. Uh, the I Quit Match. Barbed Wire. Uh, cage match, lumberjacks with belts, uh, Prince of Darkness match, Texas Death match, then the Coal Miner's Glove, and a First Blood match. So really, they're very generic. Um, I think the only one that might not have worked with the way that main event ends is maybe the I Quit match, just because of the shenanigans that happens. And to me, I always thought that the wheel was gimmicked. Because just the way it abruptly stops and it, it just it does seems just, like it was. It's like flying and flying and flying and then all of a sudden it's just, you know, stopped right there. But many, I, I just a quick peek at Wikipedia mentioned that the, the, the wheel wasn't gimmicked. And I've seen a couple of other reports saying that it wasn't. But just how the wheel just abruptly stopped, it just seemed like they were going to just do this kind of match. It was just an easy way to set up the the, the spot for the finish, so. Yeah, but before we get to our, our two main events, or actually our main event, we have two other matches. Um, but uh, first, they uh, introduce some dignitaries that are sitting ringside for 
this NWA World Heavyweight Championship match, uh, which sees our champion Masahiro Chono taking on Ravishing Rick Rude. Of course, with Masahiro Chono, there is Hiro Matsuda, and Kenzuke Sasaki is his special guest referee. And in Rick Rude's corner is Medusa with Harley Race as his special guest referee. Of course, uh, Harley Race would be the referee inside the ring. And basically, Kensuke Sasaki is the outside of the ring uh, enforcer. So uh, what did you guys think of this one? Once again, uh, this did not connect. This, in my opinion, was probably the worst match on the card because it was so boring. I, I ex- Yeah, I expected like heelish tendencies from... Uh, you know, Rude's referee Harley raced through the match, but he seemed to be very consistent, very fair during the match itself until the very spot at the end, and then suddenly calling the uh, the over the top rope disqualification as opposed to Rick Rude's tap out to the STF itself. So, um, yeah, it just it it was long. It was probably like twenty, twenty two, twenty four minutes long itself. It just seemed to keep going and going and going. And I guess coming off of that tag title match that went to the full-time limit draw, it was going to be hard to get people up and going. Um, Rude hitting the Rude Awakening, Awakening, unfortunately, with no refs in the ring to do the count and certainly would have had the title win. You know, missing the knee drop off the top to set up the STF. You know, it, it was fun for what it was. Competitive back and forth match between the two. Uh, but the the finish with Rude winning by disqualification uh, to set up a future championship endeavor between them, and I'm not even sure whether or not that happened. Maybe it happened in Japan, and he wasn't successful. Uh, down the road, we end up having an NWA title match between Chono and the Great Muda, and the Great Muda ends up winning the title from Chono. So. It felt like a match that was contractually obligated to happen, and no one actually wanted to have the match. But, like, we have to do this match on this card, so everyone just go through, go through the motions, we'll get out of here, let's have a screwy ending, and then we'll go home. But, like, no one wanted to do it. Well, it just feels like it was a match where they didn't have a really a clear ending in sight, you know, where it's, you have two promotions that are uh, cross-promoting, and it's basically, okay, who's going to try to, uh, you know, who's going to win, who's going to lose without having that well-defined going into it and having like a massive ankle. Um, it's, it's really like an exhibition match where you learn nothing from it. But uh, Educator, why don't you uh, break this, like I said, just, just long. I mean, you're just going to describe rest hold after rest I'm gonna, hold. I'm going to, yeah, just to avoid the, the many rest holds, we're going to just jump right towards the end about the 18-minute mark here. Um, at one point in the match, we see Ravishing Rick Rude. Oh, bless you. <laughs> he stuffs Masa Chono with a jumping pile driver, a really good-looking jumping pile driver. Would make Paul Orndorff blush. Uh, Harley Race comes down for a late count, but gets a two-count from that pile driver. Rude climbs to the top rope and attempts a, a double axe handle off the top. Chona kind of steps back, but then appears to botch whatever offense that he should have used, perhaps, against Rude. Rude attempts to counter with a quick takedown and locks in a, a chin lock. At one point, Rude gets back up and does an Irish whip reversal into the ropes and counters the reversal uh, by sending Chono in and catches Chono with a sleeper hold. And something happens in the crowd 
uh, right around the 20 minute mark when uh, the con- uh, the the announcer says that the 20 minute time limit or 20 minutes have expired in the match. You see visibly a lot of going on in the crowd where the crowd's like looking up and would be looking to our left. Um, something must have been going on, a fight in the stands or something like that. But the crowd was very, very distracted. Uh, Rude ends up knocking Chono down and hits a and attempts to hit a drop kick, hits a partial drop kick off of the top rope. Uh, Chono ends up hitting his one of his maneuvers is like a single ma- leg mafia kick to the back of Rude uh, or attempts to do it to Rude and actually do- uh, Rick Rude dodges out of the way and uh, Chono ends up hitting Harley Race, uh, knocking Race uh, through the ropes out of the ground. Chono then tosses Rick Rude over the top rope towards the floor in the same direction where Harley race had fallen and rude ended up landing on Kensuke Sasaki, who was checking on Harley race and Harley race himself. So now we've got both referees down rude on the floor and Sasaki back in the ring. Eventually Rick rude climbs back into the ring and ends up hitting his rude awakening neck breaker and goes for the pin count, but there's no referee. Both refs are still down uh, due to the spots earlier in the match, Rude climbs up to the top rope and attempts to hit a flying knee drop off the top rope. But Ch- uh, Chono moves, and now due to the sore knee, uh, missing that offensive maneuver, Chono does a signal. Uh, Chono does a single leg takedown, twists Rude over, and locks in the STF. And we see Kensuke Sasaki get into the ring. Rude is slapping his hands on the mat, and Sasaki ends up calling for the bell, and ends up and you know calls the match, saying that Rick Rude had uh, you know submitted due to the STF maneuver, and Chono's initially announces the winner, but then we get Harley Race into the ring, who ends up raising uh, the hand of Rick Rude. And then goes over to Gary Michael Capetta and says that Masachono is disqualified due to the over-the-top rope rule that the NWA had going on. So Rick Rude is actually announced as the winner of the match by disqualification. Post-match, there's a shoving match between um, both referees. Harley Race pushes Kensuke Sasaki. Sasaki responds by knocking Harley Race down. He clotheslines Harley Race. He then drop kicks Rick Rude, who tries to intervene. And then he front suplexes Harley Race. Pretty stiff front suplex, actually. Big guy gap, get him up and over. And then proceeds to shred his shirt off, but he couldn't get his bow tie off. So he's walking around with just his slacks on and a bow tie. And uh, raises Chono's hand, who's kind of booed from the crowd for retaining his championship. You know, we were talking earlier about there was a lot of politics discussion on the show and i feel like that's really seen in here you have the politics of wcw of nwa of different booking committees of who do we put it behind and all and this is probably the best ending that they could do to just keep everyone happy and move forward you know um rude's ridiculously impressive here i love how a guy whose entire gimmick is look at me who's all ego is absolutely egoless in his selling and making the other guy look good all the time. And then Jim Ross has what I think might be my favorite line so far in the series when he says that Rude shaved his mustache so he could be lighter in the ring. I absolutely lost it, and it honestly sounded like Jesse Ventura was laughing so hard, too, that he had to mute himself. 
boring. This match should not have been as boring as it was, too, though. Yeah, it's crazy to think about that those first three matches were the highlight, and then it just, you know, between the tag match. I mean, the tag match and then this match is an hour of the card. It's crazy. It, it was, you know, the tag match was good for 10, 15 minutes, and then it was just, uh, you know, very, very slow. And it just takes you right out of the entire event. Um, so anyways, why don't we follow that up with another Starcade uh, package, the same one, and then we get some more of the Barbarian training, and we go into match number six on the card, which is the Barbarian taking on Cactus Jack for the WCW Heavyweight Championship of the world. So we start off the match with a couple of collar and elbow tie-ups that are each guy just trying to feel each other out, shoving back and forth uh, between the guys, just seeing who's got the better test of power between the two. Barbarian does set up with a side headlock and does a shoulder block after running with the ropes that ends up knocking Ron Simmons down. Both decide to charge opposing ropes and slam into each other with running shoulder blocks. Neither is successful, kind of like the irresistible force hitting the immovable object. A third attempt is both guys throwing clotheslines at each other and neither guy is knocked down. Uh, Simmons decides to do a flying shoulder tackle for his fourth attempt, and that actually does knock Barbarian down to the floor. Barbarian does some clubbing forearms to Ron Simmons when he gets back into the ring, back Simmons into the corner. Simmons does battle back with a couple of double axe handles to knock Barbarian back and down. Barbarian drops Simmons over the, uh, the top rope while he's on the apron uh, and uh, sets up for a bunch of uh, clubbing blows. Back into the ring, Barbarian drops a power elbow drop and then tosses Simmons again back through the ropes onto the floor. At one point, Cactus Jack distracts the referee, and this allows Barbarian to throw Ron Simmons into the post and then clothesline Simmons against the post as his back was to the post itself. Barbarian then drops Ron Simmons across the ropes, uh, holds his back against the ropes, and clubs him into the chest. Simmons eventually is able to recover from uh, ringside and does a sunset flip over the top rope back into the ring uh, for a two count. Barbarian does a modified Cobra clutch. The, the commentary couldn't really decide as to what to call it because at this point we're, we're used to it being referred to as the million dollar dream in the WWF. And nobody had really been using the maneuver, so they end up you calling it some Japanese name that I failed to write down. But essentially, it's a Cobra Clutch Million Dollar Dream as a long wear down hold, as a rest hold for both guys. Simmons ends up responding to the referee's third arm drop attempt and pushes his body into the corners, uh, to three corners, uh, to try to kind of throw Barbarian off of his back, who's doing the, the Million Dollar Dream Cobra Clutch Hold. Eventually, we see uh, Barbarian break the hold itself after his third body back slam into the corner turnbuckle. Barbarian with a body slam onto Ron Simmons. Barbarian climbs to the top rope, looking like he's setting up for his flying headbutt, but instead attempts to drop an elbow off the top rope and misses as Ron Simmons rolls out of the way. 
Simmons gets up and sends Barbarian in the ropes and hits a spine buster slam, a modified version of it, only gets a two count from the referee. Simmons hits two clotheslines, a body slam, and then a shoulder block to knock Barbarian down. Simmons charges to towards Cactus Jack, who got up again on the apron to serve as a distraction. And while Simmons is back, was to Barbarian because he was going after Cactus Jack. Uh, Barbarian hits that mafia-like kick to the back of Simmons that sends him over or through the ropes onto the floor. While the referee's back is turned, Cactus Jack immediately picks Ron Simmons back up, tosses him back into the ring. And as he is first thrown into the ring, he's on one opposite side or corner of the ring. Barbarian chooses to climb the top rope at the absolute furthest corner. So super far out of position. You're just wondering there's no way he's going to be able to dive more than three quarters of the way across the ring. So Simmons cleverly, but it's very obvious, uh, repositions his body by doing a couple of rolls so that Barbarian is able to dive about half to two-thirds of the way across the ring and does hit his headbutt, goes for the uh, pinfall, but only gets a long two-count from the referee. Barbarian picks up Ron Simmons in astonishment because he couldn't win. He runs in, uh Barbarian runs against the opposing ropes, hits a running clothesline to knock Simmons down, goes for another two- pinfall attempt, only gets a two-count. Barbarian picks up Simmons and attempts to rinse and repeat. He goes against the ropes, goes for a running clothesline, but instead Simmons hits his known scoop power slam finish that he used to beat Big Man Vader for the title and uh, was successful in slamming the Barbarian and getting a 1-2-3 pinfall victory to defend his championship. I like... I like the battle of power. I like the battle of who's stronger. Cactus Jack's lots of fun on the outside. Um, Good thing for Ron Simmons to show what he can do. It's a good challenge. It's not a pay-per-view worthy challenge. It's not a pay-per-view worthy match. Good clash of the champions. Good like, you know, if you got some uh, super card on one of your shows during like a ratings month or something. But for, for Halloween Havoc, I was just like, this is a letdown to just you know, push Barbarian up to this level that he's never really been at before just to have a big man, big man match. Like, overall, disappoint- Ron Simmons, I, like, I'm not disappointed in, in either his work, but it's not a world title match for a major pay-per-view. How dare you, sir? Barbarian was the final member <laughs> of the last United States Tag Team Championship team, retired the belt. <laughs> And then is immediately thrust into the world title picture. Yeah. Yeah. How scarce the, uh, the heel side top contenders were for Ron Simmons at the time. I I was wondering that too. I'm like, this just seems like, let's find who we got here. We, we need someone quick. Yeah. If you would have told me barbarian would have had a world title match. on One of the matches we were watching, I would have said you're crazy and not believed you. Um, but do you think a lot of it, too, has to do with the fact that they used Vader for the United States as a surrogate for Rick Rude? Um, because to me, it would have been Ron Simmons versus Vader is a much more attractive match than, um, you know, uh, than Ron Simmons versus the Barbarian. Yeah, return match from the, the August Baltimore yes. show where he won the championship. 
Or, you know, I'm surprised they couldn't get things to fruition with Butch Reed, who had returned to the Clash of the Champions in September. Uh, must be they just weren't able to get a deal finalized because I don't remember anything ever coming with Butch Reed challenging for the championship. Uh, but, yeah, at this point, the heel roster was kind of thin in terms of monsters. I guess, you know, we're just plugging in a monster that Cactus Jack is supposedly training as he's pseudo feuding with Ron Simmons here and is just trying to get monster after monster to hopefully take out Simmons and win the championship. Yeah, and also too though, I I wonder how much Burt Reynolds loved this match. <laughs> All right, I'll buy house sell. Because he was mentioned throughout the show as he's being a big Ron Simmons fan. It? No, I didn't at all. Crazy. Because they went to the same college. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember that now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that's probably why Rick Rude shaved his mustache was because there's only room for one mustache on the show. So There it is. You got to mention yeah, Burt Reynolds. True. Um, so anyways, we need to kill some time bef- so they can put the coal miner glove match up in the pull up. So why don't we have Tony Schiavone uh, talking with Bruno San Martino, and then we get Eric Watts. Uh, coming in and doing a interview um, and uh, Ron Simmons joins this and kind of um, gives uh, Watts a little bit of a rub here. Uh, what did you guys think of this? I mean, just really a time killing segment for them to set up the coal miners glove time killing segment, putting your kid into, you know, <laughs> the prominent spotlight right before the main event of the show, unfortunately highlighting how terrible your kid is at the interview because man he was just tumbling over words could not figure out what what just completely stumbled and didn't know what really much to say you know how the the fans did deserve that title match and blah 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 just ugh. ron simmons comes in and uh kind of you know inserts himself in the interview bruno san martino very very complimentary to Ron Simmons, you know, for the competitive nature, you know, beating the barbarian while dealing with that maniac cactus Jack at ringside itself himself. So it was kind of cool watching Bruno, um, you know, praise the efforts of Ron Simmons here right before the main event. I mean, Simmons saves the segment when he pops in. Yeah, no disagreement there. And then we get to match seven on the night, which is, our main event, which actually kinds to show you the popularity that Sting has, that this would be the main event when you have the WCW world title, the NWA world title, um, that you are having Sting take on Jake Roberts in the coal miners glove match. Uh, guys, what did you think of this one? Um, you know, relatively short main event when you're, when you're thinking about it, because, you know, we've just come off a match that was 30 minutes, then, you know, over 20, then, you know, another one that was close to with the whole presentation up to 15. And then you get this one, which is basically just 10 minutes. Super tall pole. You could tell that they added some kind of grip tape because you could see the white stripes going all the way up the pole to help the guys climb up the pole itself. It reminded me of the flag match that we talked about. Uh, with Vader and the Patriot versus the Bulldog and Brett, just super tall pole. You would not be able to reach the actual coal miner's glove without actually climbing the pole. You know, it's just standing on the turnbuckle. You would not be able to reach up that high. It's an interesting concept, but when you physically looked at the coal miner's glove 
and how it was gimmicked or whatever it was, it wasn't all that impressive. You know, if it was more of like it had like a chain wrapped around it or it just it looked like a thicker glove, just the whatever the weird padding was, it just looked like it was duct tape wrapped around the fist. That's all that it really was. It just it really didn't really make too, too much sense. But at the same time, just the way they ended up doing the finish of the match, they, it could have been any match to get the awkward finish that we saw towards the end. Yeah, like the the glove, maybe it looks better live because you're not seeing it detailed. But as soon as the camera zooms in on it, you're like, that looks like a joke. And they were trying to say it's steel lined or lead lined or something like that to give it more weight. But it just it's, it seems like a nothing thing. You're right. The pool looks absolutely huge. I thought, what the heck are they going to do? But, you know, not to jump ahead, but damn, Sting didn't show some really innovative stuff in this match to in order to win it. Yeah, absolutely. This just seemed like a, a showcase for the man they call Sting. So, Educator, why don't you break down our main event for Halloween Havoc 1992? All right. So, uh, interesting thing that Jake Roberts coming to the ring during his entrance, he has uh, a, a theme music that's playing for him, and it actually was his theme music before they transitioned it over to Steve Austin and the Hollywood Blondes. Uh, the theme music, I believe, is called Satan's Sister. So it was just really weird hearing him come out to that music when, it, to me, it's always been synonymous with the Hollywood Blondes and Steve Austin. So right at the start of the match, we see Jake Roberts. He charges towards the pole after he gets Sting distracted to play out to the crowd. Sting does catch him and ends up body slamming Jake Roberts twice. Jake and Sting trade right hands back and forth, knocking each other down. Jake sets up a side headlock and gets Irish whipped in the ropes and is reversed. Sting goes for a drop kick onto Jake Roberts, but Jake Roberts holds onto the ropes. So Jake ends up uh, causing Sting to tumble back without any impact on his body. Jake does a few dropping knees and stomps to a down Sting. Jake tosses Sting over the top rope onto the floor. And then uh, able to recover, Sting is able to Irish whip Jake into the steel post. He does a loop around the entire ring and then reaches through the post to grab him by the wrist and yank him again, shoulder first into the post itself. Jake goes into the ring and tries to climb the post to get to the coal miner's glove. But Jake is able to recover from the uh, ring post shenanigans and catches Sting and drags him back down. Ends up doing a belly-to-back suplex on the Sting to take him to the mat. Eventually, Sting is able to recover and does a hammer lock onto Jake and starts working on his shoulder and continuing to work the shoulder down from the earlier post spot that I just mentioned. Jake hip locks Sting over the top rope and Sting lands awkwardly on the apron and Jake turns and tries to climb up to the post itself, but Sting is able to get back into the ring in time and ends up pulling down on one of Jake's legs, causing him to stumble and he kind of does a corner turnbuckle post crotch spot where he gets dropped down pretty hard on that uh, little connecting bar. Sting uh, continues back and works on the shoulder of Jake Roberts while he's down on the canvas. Jake ends up pulling Sting out to the floor and hits Sting with the back of the chair with the back of a chair. And commentary reminds us because it's a coal miners glove match. There's no DQ essentially in the match. 
At one point, we see Jake unwinding some tape from his wrist and proceeds to essentially strangle Sting from behind. Why he didn't continue to do this, if this is supposedly a no-DQ match, is beyond me. But at one point, the ref does step in and convinces Jake to hand over the tape. And something I'm not sure exactly what the intent was. Um, Sting is you know, on his knees and is slowly working the way to get up. And we see Jake standing at the opposite corner turnbuckle. And he runs to do what I think was supposed to be a running knee lift to knock Sting down. But he runs into it like he's trying to do a twisting neck breaker on the Sting. And he ends up doing a back bump for Sting. But both guys just awkwardly end up going to the ground. So I'm not really sure what the intent was. But Sting ends up recovering first from that particular bump, and Irish whips Jake into the corner. He tries to do a Stinger splash follow-up, but Jake ends up moving out of the way. Jake ends up setting up and hitting a short-arm clothesline and calls for the DDT and placates the crowd and does hit a successful DDT maneuver. It gets a huge crowd pop for that DDT but is not able to successfully follow up as he does try to climb the ring post. And Sting does a really unique, I mean, when I saw it now, the very first thing that came to my mind is, oh, look at that, Sting just did a 619 because he runs from the outside ring apron, grabs onto the extra long post, swings his body around to the exact opposite side, and ends up doing a back elbow to knock uh, Jake Roberts off of the... uh, turnbuckle back down to the canvas itself sting goes to climb the post after uh, jake was knocked down and then we see a run-in from cactus jack who at the same time drops off the snake bag and the snake handler's glove so as sting is climbing to the top post to get the coal miner's glove jake is working on putting his snake handler's glove on and getting the cobra out of the bag So Sting is now down in the canvas with the coal miner's glove. He's putting it on his fist. Jake is successfully got the snake handler's glove on and has wrangled the cobra out of the bag itself. So now Jake has his back to Sting. So he's kind of holding the cobra so that nobody can see that he has the cobra. Sting comes up kind of from behind off to the side and does a quick punch to the gut to Jake Roberts with the coal miner's glove. And this causes Jake to kind of stumble handling the snake. And the snake supposedly latches on to Jake Roberts' face. In reality, he's like forcing the snake to bite him because it didn't go off or present that well on TV. So the snake is supposedly biting Jake Roberts, as he's holding the snake close to his face, Sting does a quick roll-up pin as the snake is supposedly biting Jake Roberts, and we get the one, two, three quick pinfall, and Sting is the winner. Post-match, we see Jake still struggling with getting the Cobra off of his face. Cactus Jack is screaming at ringside. At one point, Jake is stumbling out of the ring. He falls through the ropes onto the floor. And there is or what appears to be some legit blood now trickling from Jake's face down his neck. Commentary is putting over how 
you know, Jake needs to get medical assistance. He needs the anti-venom. This is why he's all uh, woozy and wobbly. Um, Cactus Jack is screaming at, you know, Jake to get up. He's trying to drag Jake to the back. And Sting is just kind of dumbfounded watching the whole thing in the middle of the ring itself. It was a unique concept to the match. Unfortunately, the angle with the snake and the finish didn't really work out the way it was supposed to, but it is a win. It's a pinfall victory for Sting. I, I think it just ends up being so overbooked. We got to deal with this whole coal miners glove thing. Jake's not climbing that. I went like Jake's not in bad shape, but I he's definitely not in his prime here. Um, he's not in his worst either, though. Uh, Sting shimming up to try to get the the coal miners glove and then you write that like sting 619 type thing that was amazing that was best move of the match by far but i wish i wish they could have fought like just a straightforward match instead of this coal miners glove one that takes away everything because they gotta worry about climbing up to get it and then this ridiculous angle that's just flat out not working with the snake at the end you're right he's punching it he's forcing it he's like beating up this poor animal in the ring to try to get this spot to finish the match and be done with it. (laughs) And it just like, it it ruins the whole thing. And it honestly makes the pay-per-view end on a downer, which granted kind of like the last hour of it accomplished that as well. (laughs) But it's just, Sting's very good in this match. The rest I feel is a mess. You know, you bring up the uh, Sting 619 move with the pole. Um, Very reminiscent to him swinging like Tarzan on the rope in the Thunderdome match as well. So they're really, you know, he is finding, he's finding some innovative offense in these ridiculous gimmick matches. And why do you think with Halloween Havoc, just because of the Halloween gimmick that wrestling decides that there always needs to be gimmick matches on these shows. I mean, even current day, WWE always has Hell in a Cell in the month of October. Just, you know, something going with the ghoulish craziness that Halloween, you know, the horror, the craziness, Um, you know, it's gimmicky month and I guess it lends it to the holiday itself, but, you know. Luckily, we're going to see another spin the wheel next next show, and we'll see if they can better capitalize on the type of match that the two competitors are going to have. Yeah, like uh, Kevin said, too, you kind of wish this was just a straightforward match because when it is a straightforward match, it was pretty, pretty good. Uh, Sting and Jake Roberts, a very unique matchup, too, but with the added gimmick, with that added layer, it just doesn't sit well with me, so... Uh, anything else you guys want to say about the pay-per-view? Um, it doesn't really end there, just so everyone knows, just to kind of be a completionist. Uh, Tony Schiavone and Bruno do a little stand-up at the end, and then they have JR and Jesse just talk about the events and how they're looking forward to Starcade. Um, so anything from you guys, anything you want to add that we haven't covered yet? I'm all set. All right. No, good. All right. So it is that time. Uh, our top five matches of Halloween Havoc. Uh, I'm going to make this one really simple and say there probably isn't a match in the top five. Um, I know, I think we're all in agreement. The best match of this card is Big Van Vader versus Nikita Koloff? I would say so. I'll agree. Yeah. There's there's parts I liked, um, 
I like the Pillman Steamboat one, but something was missing. You know, like there, there, there's things that were good, but I would absolutely agree that's the best one of the night. But I don't think it's top five. I don't think it's top five either. Educator. Well, let's put it up against what's on the bottom with number five, and we'll go from there. So number five is the Thunder Domain event from Halloween Havoc 89. No, I can't justify it. <laughs> right, yeah, no, that's no. what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. so. As soon as you remind um, me. Like so that. why don't we go right there? We'll run it down for everyone. Uh, of course, number five is the Thunder Dome. Number four is Lex Luger taking on Ron Simmons out of two out of three falls. Uh, number three is Bobby Eaton versus Terrence Taylor. Uh, number two is Brian Pillman versus Lex Luger. And then holding strong at number one is the Nasty Boys versus the Steiner Brothers. And then to kind of rank the shows, we literally have just been going right in order. I think the, we said, what, number one was 91, and then number two was 90, and then number three was 89? I think we're about to break that mold here. All right. Yeah. Is, why don't we start at the bottom and work our way top, is... 1992 better than 1989's Halloween Havoc? Nope. No. And I would agree. <laughs> I would think this is the worst one we have watched. Um, like I said, I feel like the the first three matches are really good, and then it really goes downhill. Um, the three matches that come after, even though the tag match has great work in it, it's just way too long. Right. Uh, and then Rick Rude versus Masahiro Chono is just way too boring and then ron simmons versus the barbarian is just a tv match in our opinion yeah. so I, w- I would think that and sting versus jake roberts is it is a little fun but it is nothing that great so those are our top four guys of course number one 91 number two 90 number three 89 and then number four is halloween havoc 1992 to kind of preview what's coming on next week's episode of course Mr. Educator alluded to it. Our main event of Halloween Havoc 1993 is Cactus Jack taking on Big Van Vader. And we're just going to say it's a spin the wheel, make a deal match. We're not going to give away exactly what the gimmick is, but I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to these Halloween Havocs. They have been fun to watch and see because they're such unique shows. Um, even when you're getting bad wrestling and just over the top cheesiness, you know, there, there's some sort of whimsical campy fun (laughs) to these events. If that makes any sense that I, I really do enjoy. One of the things that I'm finding that I'm enjoying a lot is because of the fact that there is a bit, a one full year gap between the storylines and the show. We're seeing how the product is has changed has evolved gotten better gotten worse you know when we're doing the in your house series we're basically one storyline from one show leads into the next show kind of deal and there's like this continuous building so to speak and we're just basically seeing a reset button hit year after year so it's interesting to see how certain you know stars from one year where their positions are on the car the following year or new faces that we're starting to see for the first time. I'm very much enjoying this series and, and I, I look forward to our future shows that we have with the future Havocs. Can I, can I just point out too, guys, not only is our main event a spin the wheel, make a deal match, but our opening match features the Shockmaster. I'm the next pay-per-view. I'm just throwing that out there. 
So oh. whole Uncle Fred, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so we get the Shockmaster. We're going to spin the wheel, make a deal. You're going to have to tune in next Thursday night. Uh, so, Educator, what do you want to say to the people out there? As always, want to say thank you to any uh, of our fans that are tuning in and listening to us every Monday and Thursday when our shows are posted. want to say thank you to my two co-hosts here. It's always fun to be able to sit down, hang out, and listen to your perspectives on to some of these older shows that we get to talk about. want to say thank you to the Retro Network, as always, for their support and um continued uh our our working relationship with you guys we are ever so thankful for the opportunity to be hosted uh on your site and through the various platforms that are available to us and want to say you know take you know take advantage guys of fun.com halloweencostumes.com and the various uh discounts that are you're capable of finding in our show notes absolutely i kind of want to piggyback off the educator they there and say go to the show notes and look at the links click on them if you want to save 20% off one item at halloweencostumes.com and 15% off one item at fun.com you know halloween is basically a week away you know 10 days away so you got to make sure you get in that halloween costume in so that way you have it for the holiday uh, and as always if you want to engage with us on twitter you can find me at maddie treats on twitter uh, and, you know, where you get my takes on wrestling and just me making fun of Kevin on Twitter. It's always a good time. Always fun. And I'm going to say to Mr. Master Library, Kevin, straight out of the Hellions, take us home. All right. Thank you to my co-host for another good show. Thank you to Retro Network for hosting us. Thank you to WWE Network for the content. Thank you to Richard Reader and Jason Gross for our logo. You can find us across the internet at TRN Housed Show. You can find Maddie Treats' stuff at Maddie Treats. My own stuff at Mass Library and MassLibrary.com is the home blog. Make sure to check out HalloweenCostumes.com, Fun.com, and the link in the show notes for our own merchandise. And guys, uh, oh my gosh, look at that. We're out of time. There's no winner tonight. This episode of The House Show is a draw. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.